Hey everyone, welcome back to Farmer Farming for Passive Income. Today we have a special guest on the show, Derek Clifford. Um, Derek has retired himself, recently exited his W-2 um, job, his corporate job, um, back in 2021, September or so. Um, he has 400 apartment units and 50 million assets under management. So he started small. That That is a huge accomplishment, Derek. So congrats on that. Thank and you. you. You know, instead of just reading this bio, I, you have such a unique story, I think. And it's actually like pretty similar to mine in, in a sense. So, I mean, why don't you just give us a quick bio, background on how you got started in this business? For sure. Yeah, I'll try to keep this as brief as I can. But um, you know, I, I started out, you know, as a corporate employee, always wanting to do the A plus student type of thing, right? Um, following the rules and just getting my way through college, getting a high paying job, and then just in the middle of it, realizing that this is what wasn't for me. Um, I don't know what it was about it, Casey, but I think the pushing or the tipping point for when I figured out that I couldn't work a full time job for the rest of my life was when I realized how much because I was working for a consulting company. I realized how much money I was saving for the client or generating revenue for the client. I was in the oil and gas business, right? So I was realizing how much my time was worth and how much value there was in what I was producing for them. And when I calculated out and backed out how much I was making through my contractor and through the client and finally through to me, it was like a very small sliver of the value that I was contributing. Pennies and on I the kept dollar. thinking... Yeah. And, and it drove me nuts, Casey. Like, I don't know why it did, but it just drove me crazy. Cause it was like, I'm making this company $2 million a year in extra revenue. And they're paying me like, I think it was uh, something around like, I think it was 40 bucks an hour or, or 50 bucks an hour, something like that. And I was just like, why am I not incentivized to continue to find these problems for them and add more revenue to their bottom line and then have me be a partner there. And turns out ownership is why. Um, I didn't have any yep. ownership in the business. I was just a paid employee, a paid, a paid gunned hand, right? Um, yep. To be able to do all this. And so uh, from that point forward, I knew I had to be a business owner and I just didn't know what to do. And, and my wife in 2008, she had bought a condo. I hadn't even met her at the time, but she bought a condo in 2008, literally two months before the crash um, in 2008. So she had purchased a condo for $250,000. A couple months later, it was worth ninety. dollars Oh, which is man, right? like to have that type of value evaporate. What is right? that in California? No, it was in Washington state. Okay. I was up in like the Seattle area. And so, you know, I was working in Texas at the time she had family in Texas. So we just happened to meet when she was in town visiting her parents in Texas. And, um, you know, eventually we started dating and, um, you know, eventually moved out to Washington state to be closer to her. And she finished grad school. And when she finished grad school, the, the condo was still underwater, you know, four years later in 2012, we couldn't sell that thing. It had, it, I think it had recovered a lot of its value. It was up at like 170 or something like that, or, or 150, but there's no way that two college kids or two people right out of college are not going to be able to write a hundred thousand dollar check to close that gap for what we were underwater for. Right. Casey. So you can just essentially like three jobs. That's fine too. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So essentially what we did was we had no other choice, but to rent it out. And so we rented out that condo while she got her residency down in the Bay Area. And then I followed her down to the Bay Area and she still held that condo um, in Washington State. And as we were driving from Washington State down to California, we got a notification in our email inbox that we had a deposit received through Zelle, right? Or through the you know PayPal or I can't remember what it was back then. Mm -hmm. But 
once we got that, it's like, oh my God, this is the business that I'm looking for. And if we were able to do this, Casey, on accident, imagine what we could do if we really leaned into it and tried, right? So, you know, that combined with my struggles with my full-time work, you know, trying to find something different, it just led me down this like tunnel vision path of just going on bigger pockets, listening to all of the podcasts that they have, consuming everything I could on the, the subject, and then reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad just kind of solidified everything. So long story short, you know, once that happened, we spent a year studying, another two years buying 10 houses and then maxing out our single family capacity because they only limit you to 10 loans. Then bought a small multifamily, stabilized that. And then a couple of years later, um, we ended up getting like our first couple of JVs in with other people. And now that was at like, I think we had 50 units at the time. And that was about two years ago. And now we're up to 400 and so. That's great, man. That's really cool. And it's it speaks to me so much because I did the exact same thing in what was it 2020 when the lockdown started my skin started to crawl being locked up in the house and just realizing exactly to your point like hey how much value I was bringing and just not having any control in my life and then yeah went down that real estate rabbit hole and also the community was quite amazing like something that I had never really experienced before in that everyone was just offering up advice you know you'd go to the forums you'd have conversations, you'd listen to the podcast, and everyone was willing to give up their tips and tricks and their secret sauce, even though, you know, it's not really a secret. Real estate's very simple business model, which is also something that really attracts me to it. Um, Indeed. But it, it just clicked. And then I was like, I have to get into this community, you know, or at least be a part of it in some way and giving back to the community as well. So I don't know if you felt the same way, but that's kind of how I felt right when I started going down that rabbit hole. I did. I did, man. I I can resonate with you on that. It felt like it was really odd to be in an industry like an oil, right, where everything was so close to the chest. Like a lot of the senior engineers, they would do their reviews in secret and wouldn't allow some of the junior engineers to catch on to what it is that they did that made them really good at what they did. Because if they did in that world, in this win-lose world, right, of corporate America, you have, as soon as you have the knowledge, you can, you, you can replace them, or at least that's the, that's the perception in the, first of all, in the W2 and the W2 mindset. And secondly, in an, in an oil where there's little innovation, right? And when I came into this multifamily business, I was blown away by the support and started to realize Casey that like, what's good for you is what's good for me too. If there's a trust factor there. Yeah. Because you and I, maybe we may be able to do like, I don't know, 12 units each, right? Like we may be able to do, if we work separately, we could do 12 units. But if we work together, we could do 64, right? Hard to explain that to an audience member, but there's a spirit of collaboration and discovery and like entrepreneurship where we're all trying to help each other because what's good for me is good for you because of that regard. And it's more of an abundant thing rather than a scarcity thing. So I'm glad that you touched on that. Yeah, exactly. And it is more like the abundance thing and this whole, this this whole rabbit hole that I've been going on, it's been, I started my master's a little bit before COVID. And so I've just been in a learning mode for a very long time. <laughs> and then, so it just fit very well into the growth and abundance mindset and then finding this community and then figuring out exactly what you just said that two or one plus one can equal three in, in weird situations. Um, Absolutely. when you have the, when you add in that human factor. So yeah, 
100% man. Yeah. Yep. Sympathetic to that for sure. So back to let's probably should talk some real estate now. Um, <laughs> so you do multifamily. So that's um, just like apartment buildings and what markets are you in? Yeah. So I'm, 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 I'm always looking to learn more about this because, you know, it's, it's, it's a fallacy to say that anyone is in one fixed market for forever because that's, that's probably not the best way to approach it. Um, but I've been finding a lot of success in the Midwest. So I'm in Indianapolis and in Louisville. And then I also have some stuff in the Texas triangle down in San Antonio and Austin. So I love those markets. And I've been trying to get into Colorado recently, just because I love the appreciation factor that's, you know, there. And the idea, Casey, behind that is I have my cash flow markets, which is the Midwest, where I have most of my experience. Then I have the appreciation markets, which is Colorado, where I'm trying to get more and more active into. And then we have Texas, which is kind of a blend of the two. So, you know, I'm, I want to have every, something for everything for all my investors and make sure that I'm not limiting myself to one specific market, but also not too many markets. So that's kind of why I'm, I'm on those, those specific regions. Yeah, that's a really good point you bring up, aligning your business model to your investor base. I mean, it didn't used to be like that, right? Because you were your own investor, you and your wife, right? So how, can you walk right. us through like what that transition, what that transformation looked like from a business perspective and then how you just think about it going forward? Yeah, you know, it's a natural progression for most investors. So for a lot of the audience members that are listening to this, maybe they're getting started, maybe they're in single families, um, maybe they're curious and just learning about multifamily or just real estate investing in general, or maybe they're already passive investors. But I feel like for those of us who are cut out to be active, like you and I, Casey, like we're, we're meant to be living and breathing in the real estate space as a job and as a business, right? You follow this natural progression of being active in single families and then active in joint ventures and small multifamily because you're used to the fact of spending your own money to get into ownership of these own, of your deals, right? Well, what happens when you run out of cash, but you still want to continue to grow? That's when you start having to use other people's money. And when you use other people's money, you'll find that the friction is less if you listen to your investors and you'll have more throughput. Like you'll have access to twice as much capital and twice as much deal flow if you're willing to listen and have this two-way dialogue of saying, here's my specialty. What are you interested in, right? And being open and communicative to your investors, um, that shows that you care and you're taking their feedback and they listen to that and they respond to that well because we're providing a service to them. We're providing them access to property, right? And we want their input, whether it's they choose to invest with us, that's input, or whether it's active input onto how the property should be managed. And I'm the type of person who wants that. I want to be collaborative with my investors and make sure that they know that they have some level of control over their capital because they've earned it um, yeah. and that we're working together for a common goal. So um, it's basically just listening to feedback and understanding that as you grow as a business, you go from making decisions for yourself, for being a steward from that point of view, from point A, to then going to point Z, which is understanding that you're providing a service for others and you have to be willing to adapt to what people are telling you that they want, right? And so that's kind of that, that shift there, right? You're working alone to working with others. It's a lot like when you're building a business, you're by yourself or working a small team to now you're part of a big team and you're a leader of a team. Now it's less about getting the job done. It's more about harmony and getting along and growing and vision and all of those things. So hard right. for me to pin down exactly what, a, what I'm trying to say here, but I think you may know what I'm trying to get yeah, at. It, yeah. Well, what I'm curious about is from the investor standpoint, you, you say 
you want to partner with your investors on these deals because we want to provide value through these services um, in uh, in the right way. Like there's a uh-huh. lot of shady ways you could do this, but I don't I like doing things very transparent. I'm sure you are the very same way. But when you bring investors into these deals, you try to basically have them have a say. Um, but at the same time, there's this legal entity structure where, you know, legally, sometimes passive investors or usually passive investors are limited partners in deals, and they technically don't really have says yep. or votes in the deal um, per the PPMs and just the legal dark documents. So maybe you could just walk us through like how you think about the entity structure and how the, the relationship between um, GPs, general partners, and the LPs, the limited partners. Yeah, you're you're completely right, Casey. There is a there is a a legal right for us as operators to be able to say we're making the decision on behalf of you, right? And I think that when it comes down to the minutia, yes, my investors don't really have a say in how things are operated, but they have a major say in which deals they participate in and which ones they go in. So you're right on the deal level and paperwork wise, there's GPs, there's LPs. The GPs make the decisions; they earn sweat equity. And sometimes they wear multiple hats, like they put in capital alongside the investors. So they have an LP hat where they're a limited partner on one side, and then they have the sweat equity hat on the other side. And most good operators do that. So for listeners that are out there, make sure that whoever you're investing with, they are putting capital in their own deals as well as an LP. That's that's a big red flag if they are not able to do that. Yeah. Um, in any event, yeah, go, go ahead, Casey. I don't want to... Well, no, you're good. And I was just going to add, um, maybe if they if they don't, put money in their own deals, there's also incentive structures to be created to where the GPs don't get paid unless the LPs are paid first through sure. the preferred return and through other hurdle rates. So yeah, just important to clarify, like in most structured deals, the LPs are getting their returns and their yep. return of capital Perfect. back before the GPs see one cent anything yeah usually there's always acquisition fees there's asset management fees that go in there but you know casey um i was talking with michael blanc the other day and um michael blanc if you haven't heard of him um folks out there like he's he's pretty active in the space as well um and what he was saying is that he doesn't do any prefs in any of his deals which is very interesting and he has never done that some limited partners will look at that and say that is ridiculous why would i invest with someone that doesn't prioritize me and my capital first, because I'm the one who's making this deal happen. I mean, yeah, they put the plan together and everything, but without the down payment from coming from me and the CapEx expenses and, and all that, the reserves and everything, like there's no, there's no deal. I agree, but the savviest investors, and I've talked with a lot of them, right, that, have, there's, that are accredited and have been doing this for a long time, they found that the most success comes from when the GPs are motivated. So they are compensated well. So both the LPs and GPs are compensated well. So there's another layer to this. That's why it's so complicated, right? Because some LPs see it that way. They're like, I want to be paid first. And I get that, right? Sometimes that's how it is. But then there's other LPs that are like, you know what? Wait a minute. I want to truly look at where the incentive is going. Like, yes, I'm putting capital in, but really for me, it's hands off. How do I make the person who is running the deal pay attention to the deal because obviously they have other deals going on too how do i incentivize them to to operate well 
And so that's Michael Blanc's reason to, to, for that is because when you have a motivated operator, they'll do more to push rents higher and they'll do more to, you know, because they have more skin in the game and they have more to win if they're able to succeed more. So you have to balance these schools of thought, right? It's like you have LPs that want this and you have LPs that want that. And sometimes it's your job to educate and negotiate that, like talk through. And sometimes you will match certain investors with certain deals and certain structures. So that's just something to be aware of that I've at least pointed out. Um, it's not quite exactly black or white, but it depends on who you, dear listener, if you are a limited partner, what it is that you prioritize and how you think about partnering with other people. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. And when the LPs are going to these operating partners or capital raisers um, syndicating deals, it's important for them to understand their investing criteria. You know, are they more interested in monthly cash flow or quarterly cash flow? Or do they just want a safe place to put their cash because it's losing 8% a year with inflation, right? Um, so understanding those, um, just those basics about what you're going for will really help um, help us out. And definitely you as, you, as you are aligning your investor base, do you go into Colorado? Do you go into Indianapolis? Do you go into Texas? Like what your what assets you're searching and also, you know, what sub-markets? Um, yeah. But, but back to that um the the asset part if you don't don't mind so it's multifamily but how are you guys positioning yourself in the market so you're ensuring that you can deliver on your promises for the limited partners yeah dude this is a great question thank you for asking this and a lot of operators don't understand this and this is why i feel blessed to be able to answer this question in a way that i feel um most people should answer uh, because what I do, Casey, is I find deals, underwrite deals, put them together, raise capital and asset manage. I do everything from soup to nuts. Of course, I have JV partners on the syndication side that I bring in with to help with asset management and, and with capital raising. But I have a unique perspective to be able to comment on this because I know the whole process. And what I would say for insurance policy and for all you listeners out there and even you, I'd like your opinion on this, right, is focus on NOI. That's what it is. You've got to focus on NOI because cap rates, interest rates, um, values, right? That stuff, more or less, you cannot control. You really can't. Like you, you, you don't know what the economy is going to do in the next two years. The interest rate, like good luck trying to influence that. That's basically based on how the Fed interprets the job reports and inflation data and things like that, at least right now as we're recording this in August of 2022. So to me... If you can find deals where there's a clear upside for the NOI, you're protecting yourself from everything, dude. You have, you can do your exit strategy. You can refinance. You're adding options. If you can get in there and add value, right? Increase rents, reduce expenses, and you buy the right property at under value, right? And so that's always what we're looking for. If you can get your NOI up, you can solve almost all the problems that come up in a typical deal that isn't in trouble and underwater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I would also like to add that another way, kind of the, the same coin other side is looking at the loan to cost. So you buy the asset at yeah. 10 million, but you have a CapEx budget, budget of two. So you're in at call it maybe three because maybe you add some fees and so on and so forth, some other stuff on top of that. But your return, your NOI divided by that total cost um, is really a really solid metric to use because you can't really influence that 
um, or sorry, not loan to cost, yield yield to cost um, from our standpoint. Um, you, it's harder to manipulate that in into the future. Agreed. And I think that, you know, people that are really savvy with how they want to structure the debt is is the be- is one of the most important things too. So I agree with you, Casey. I think net operating income, like being able to focus on that and have a clear path to value addition and expense reduction, um, that's really, really important. Uh, but also having a clear debt structure with insurance policies behind it. Like we only do, even with our bridge products, we tell lenders that all we want is a five-year fixed product. Whatever it is at closing, that's what it is. We'll buy a cap if we need to, but we keep it fixed. We don't do variable loans and we want to make sure we have a long enough runway in five years and then have an exit strategy to be able to refinance into agency debt later on, which is like, you know, the Freddie loans and those are the 30-year amortized and, you know, potentially 80% loan to value type products. Those are what our exit strategies are. And if you have high NOI, Casey, and you have a debt runway, you have options. You can do either. You can sell the product or yep. you can refinance. And so that's what we're always looking for is options because you never know what the market's going to do. Wait, you don't have a crystal ball? Come on, Derek. <laughs> Dude, if I did, um, <laughs> I don't think we'd be talking, man. I think uh, I think I'd be... I'd be off in the sunset somewhere. Well, you did have a beach background right before this. So (laughs) don't fool me. Don't fool me, Derek. Thank you, tech companies. I really appreciate (laughs) the, uh, you know, the, the ability for us to simulate our, the, the places that we want to be in. So exactly. Well, you were a digital nomad though for a while. So you could just probably pull up your computer anywhere and it looks. Well, yeah, actually, you know, we just got back from four months, right. Of traveling. We were in Europe for four months, Casey. Um, I can't believe you visited we, all of Europe and you didn't mean, didn't even see me in the Netherlands. <laughs> Are you so in the right. Netherlands right now? I am, yeah. Dude, oh my gosh, I wish I'd known that. Maybe we would have taken taken a, a short uh, stop over there. That's cool. I should have just met you in uh, Ireland when you were there. But yes, was, sir. All good though. All good. Yeah, or Iceland. Iceland is amazing. If you've never been, you got to go. I need to go. I need to go. All right. N- enough about the chit chat. So back to the. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the multifamily. So how, so you're underwriting these underwriting, financially underwriting these deals with the debt, you're estimating your income and your expenses and making sure what we call is like underwritten conservatively with mm-hmm. those types of principles. And can you just walk us through some of those principles that you use in your financial underwriting to ensure that there's a lot of buffer to ensure the returns for your investors. Yeah, thank you, man. This is this is really great. I think um, this needs to be focused on a lot, actually, uh, but it doesn't. It doesn't get focused on. I think um, the main. There, there's a couple of things. The first thing is rent growth. We're basically keeping flat, like we're matching that with expense growth. So it's usually anywhere between two and three percent, depending on the asset type and what the market is. Um, in Indiana, we do. Uh, 2% or 2.5%. And then Texas will do 3 to 3.5%. And remember, we're not really gaining any ground though, Casey, because it's income and expense growth. So there's yep. really nothing there. Um, and what we model is whatever the market rents are, when we when we purchase, whenever we whenever we purchase it, that is going to be like our, our uh, market value. And then we burn off the loss to lease to there. So we only consider what the market rents are right now, which is no knowledge, right? Um, yep. And then that that's one thing. The other thing is, is that we underwrite an extra quarter of a percent in our loan in interest rates. So if we think we're going to you know, get our loan at 5.25, well, we just underwrite at five and, and a half, right? Okay. That's what we yep. get for our interest rate. 
Another thing that we do is we expand our cap rate. So a lot of um, people in like the, you know, Florida markets and Arizona markets, they can pretty much count on having their caps compressed, even going from like three and a half down to three and a quarter or something. That's not going to fly for us. We expand our cap rate, which means that the valuation goes down on the exit, um, at least in our numbers, right? That's what yeah. we, we forecast. So expand meaning um, increasing the capitalization rate. And so like correct. in year five, it'll be 6% where in the year that you bought it, it you, maybe you bought it at 5%. Correct. So increasing yeah. that cap rate to 6% is an indirect relationship to the exit sale price. So Correct. the higher the cap rate, the lower the exit price. That's right. That's our only way to be able to compensate for expectations in the future because we don't know what the future is going to do. So we expand the cap rate by five to 10 basis points every year that we hold. So, you know, if it's a five-year hold, that's half a cap, you know, half a point that we that we expand the cap, um, at least for the Midwestern markets and the same same in Texas and Colorado is a little bit different. Um, but in either event, that that's what we do. And then um, I'd say that the, the last thing that we do um, is we we are conservative in our expenses. We always make sure that when we pay, take over the property, we're adding an extra layer. We're adding like another three to 5% expenses on top of what the current operations has, just because you never know. It could be, it could be a real estate tax reassessment. It could be a payroll problem. Um, it could be property management fees that we never heard of. Um, and so we found that doing something like that is a great catch-all um, that just helps helps us in the long run and and helps make a more informed decision. So having all of those things, Casey, means that if we have a problem when we get to closing or once we close and we're in our first year, we have so many levers to pull that there's options to keep investors whole. Yeah, exactly. And with that, how do you guys um, think about your CapEx and your reserve budgets? Like, do you guys raise for, say, six months of CapEx and, and reserves because it's going to be a big value add where you're maybe you are revitalizing 80% of the units. So you need a lot of money for that. And there's, there could be supply chain issues, right? So how do you, how do you guys think about that? Dude, this is a wonderful question, man. I, I did not expect to be, uh, to, to be quizzed on some of the asset management and operations, but I'm glad to share what, what I do. Um, I think that it, there's a case to case, it's a case to case basis. If you think that there's going to be enough cash flow and the investors are okay with you using all the cash flow up to um, inject back into the property, um, usually there's a trade-off with that of higher returns, right, in the end, but lower cash flow. Um, if you need to raise more in the beginning, but still keep the cash flow coming in the earlier years, then that's when we would raise more CapEx, right? And so we look to get, like, let's say that the CapEx budget is 500 grand off of a, you know, a five, $5 million property, right? Which is pretty reasonable for a nice value add project, right? Um, depending on what the lender will do for you, because some bridge lenders will give you like a CapEx loan, which is what we like to do, because then we can use the bank's money to improve and then refinance later. Mm -hmm. um, we like to aim to do all of the essential things, like, for instance, exteriors and three quarters of the unit turns. If there's a little bit of extra cash flow, like that's this is our general rule of thumb is any exterior work and like you know paving, um, roofing, mechanicals um, that mechanicals that need to be addressed right away, we'll do that. Plus unit turns, those and seventy five percent to one hundred percent of unit turns. That's what we raise up front as our total capex, and usually we'll bring in a bridge lender who will lend most of that to us, right? Okay. Um, but some of the other things 
um, like furnaces and hot water heaters that we know are getting close to the age, the end of their age, uh, we'll just run those things. We'll just let them run until they replace because we'll build in a CapEx replacement reserve in our cash flow so that that way we're not, you know, struggling when they do need to be replaced. We do a modest assessment. We figure out the ages. We see like when they're going to start to phase out um, and make sure we match that up with our P&L um, over the years so that we know approximately when they're going to crap out essentially. ACs. Yeah you know, hot water heaters, things like that. So we don't like to raise for those things right up front because why, you know, why, why do that right. now? Um, and then, you know, you can go in there and, and raise for stuff that needs to be immediately addressed and that has immediate value add to the property, which is exteriors, right? Because if you improve the exterior, you can get more traffic to come through and want to lease your property. And if you improve the interiors, a dollar that you spend there is going to fetch you an extra, I don't know, five cents in revenue or 10 cents in revenue. So that makes sense. But for a dollar that you spend on a, uh, on a hot water heater that you're changing out early, like two years early, the tenant doesn't care about that. They're not going to pay you extra for a, a hot water heater. So why would you do that? You know? Yeah. So we're, we're looking at it, we catalog it. And when these things reach the end of their life, then we'll buy in bulk and we'll start replacing them in each places, you know, whenever, whenever we need to. So that's the other thing too, is buying in bulk and, and also uh, having temperature settings. Like those things have been really, really cool for our NOI growth and, and things that have helped on, on expense savings. But that's another topic that I'm, I'm digressing on. No, I'm, well, it brings up a good point though, because you're just, you can leverage technology now in such a way that you couldn't used to. And the building materials are so much better and you can, I mean, even the, with the water heaters, they can last for what, 20, 30 years. Oh yeah. If you buy the right ones, for sure. Exactly. Absolutely. So, I mean, back to those like water heaters and just cabinets and countertops and all mm -hmm. those types of things in this crazy supply chain environment and this inflationary environment, how are you guys thinking about executing on that value add strategy at the various locations? Yeah, so good question. Um, the good news is that since we're in multifamily, right, we don't have single families spread out all over the place. Usually you can get some pretty good economies of scale if you're going to be doing, um, if you do a really good inspection and you catalog what you need up front. Um, a good property manager will do that for you too. But, you know, while you're doing the inspections, if you're, if you're prepared and you're like, you have a checklist, which I could even share the screen right now and show you my checklist of what our partners walked through and said, toilets need to be fixed tub surround. Um, you know, we did a full due diligence workup and how much we need to spend to turn the units. Um, you have a list of everything you need if you do that properly. So if you know out of, you know, 100 units, you need 40 sets of cabinets. Well, dude, why don't you just buy those things up front while you're getting right or order them while you're under contract or as soon as you close, right? And then have them delivered to the property and put it in a basement and secure the basement, right? Like that's, that's what you do. If you buy them in bulk and you know they need to be turned, you have supplies there and you can save in, in that type of thing. If only if you're prepared, much like in your personal life, right? Like if you go to Costco um, here in the US, we're Costco junkies. And if you have the space to store it uh, and it has the shelf life and you anticipate to use it, you can save some pretty big money by doing it that way. Yeah, exactly. And also maybe you guys could just go on like Father's Day and get some 10% off discounts too. That could Dude. I'm writing that down. That's going to be part of our thing. You think they'll give um, Father's Day discounts to cabinets? I don't know. You can ask. Will. You don't know until you ask, Derek. That's true. Good point. Maybe maybe uh, Black Friday, right? Or no, um, yeah, Black, like the, the uh, you know, the sales on Thanksgiving, oh, yeah. right after oh, Thanksgiving. Yeah. 
yeah. free turkey, 10% off cabinets. <laughs> Dude, I'll take the 10% off the cabinets, man, all day. Yeah, turkeys are <laughs> overrated anyway. Like, turkeys are overrated. Cook one of those things for six hours. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, that's a really good strategy, though. I mean, it's all about lead time and making sure you have the right things to execute on your business plan, having those checklists and making sure your processes are all in place. So you're not missing something is vital to the execution. Cause this is a hot industry. I mean, people, there's experts in this industry. And if you're not on top of your game, then you're probably going to get burnt. Right. I mean, that's right. It's competitive. I mean, it's got a, it's a dual edge, right? Because if it's competitive in the sense that acquisitions is really hard these days, but multifamily is like the poster child for what banks want and what investors want, because there's a very clear and easy to understand need for multifamily, right? So that means that if you can get in and hold on to it, then there's going to be a great exit for you because you know it's going to be in demand. So yeah. there's there's that dual double edged sword there, and so. We like to use processes, preparation, and um, knowledge of the market to help as our unfair advantage. Um, and all the deals that we do, we have boots on the ground owners that are significant owners that live next to the properties. Um, and you know, thanks to networks that you and I are in, Casey, um, there's an easy way to do that uh, once you're exploring a market is to first get a person there. And that person will help spearhead a lot of these, these initiatives alongside the property manager. So yeah. that's kind of our basic strategy there with that. Yeah. Love it. Yep. Uh, the so you mentioned a good point in that multifamily is basically the bread and butter from the investor standpoint and the debt lenders, which could be lending anywhere up to eighty percent of that of that investment. Why can you walk us through the rationale between why that is such a great asset class from those perspectives and why someone should look into investing in? perhaps larger deals versus investing in a single family home or a fourplex or something like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as I understood this, like I was done with single families for good. I, I did what's called a 1031 exchange and, you know, moved all my, my equity into a, into an apartment building. But yeah, I think um, just, just think about the effort that it takes to close 10 single family properties versus one multifamily property with 10 units. Like you have, uh, 10 loans, 10 sets of books, potentially two or three property managers, or maybe one property manager depends, right? But, and then you have 10 ACs, 10 roofs, like the economies of scale is just clearly unmatched. Like you got to have that when it comes to the multifamily business. And then also I love the lending part of it, Casey, because the valuation of properties from going from single family or small multifamily, which is like one to four units, you basically, the value of your property is based on what everything is selling for. Full stop. That's it. Yep. If you have a commercial property that's 12 units, even or anything above five, technically, um, you have control because if you can force up the NOI, that's your value. The cap rate, of course, you know, that comes into play, but you have a direct opportunity to increase the value of your building by operating it well. So I don't like keeping, you know, having the value of my building being based on like what other people say they'll pay for it. Like that just, for me, that seems flimsy. So for those two reasons, economies of scale and valuation of the property, that's why I really like the apartment buildings and commercial real estate in general. Yeah. Couldn't agree with you more. And that is exactly why I 
forwent the decision to go burring or buying single family houses, um, rehabbing them, re renting them out, refinancing them and repeating. So the acronym is just burring. I almost went and did that in Indianapolis where actually you operate out of um, mm -hmm. with some cash from another single property that I sold. Um, but it just, none of that made sense to me. And then I also found out about the world of syndications and investing as a limited partner and getting, you know, risk adjusted returns with great operators. And then I was just sold. Oh, dude, for sure. It's like almost when you do the burr world, like you're, you're like, you're so excited because it's worked, right? Like you've sold a property. Um, you're taking matters into your own hands. You have a job, but you're still making money on the side, right? And you're like, man, I got to get more into this. And it's a fallacy. You're actually buying yourself another job, Casey, you know? Um, but when you're in the multifamily business and you're working with other people to partner up on bigger pies, even though your slice is smaller, but you're, you're still partnering up, there's more to share, right? Then that becomes a more sustainable business because you can leverage, you can outsource, you can focus and specialize on things that you feel is zero effort to you, the things that you want to do. And so that, those are some of the really incredible benefits of, of that. And I'm, 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 I really applaud the fact that you resisted the temptation to burr, even though like the returns from burrs are with like they're, <laughs> they're massive, crazy, right? You just but use it's the a job. same capital to go do the same thing, yeah. but it yeah. just didn't seem scalable. And then the value that, um, or just the opportunity that real estate provides specifically commercial real estate and the various asset classes, um, the value that that provides from a limited partner standpoint and the general partner standpoint, I don't think is stated enough in the general public um, where we're just told to, you know, invest in 401ks and mutual funds and some bonds and you're going to be okay if you put in 40 hours and then we see that that's not a real thing. Like we have to provide opportunities to our limited partners and invest investors to get equity ownership in these deals. Bingo. Yeah. hundred percent, man. I could not agree with you more. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sold on it and you're rocking it, man. Um, always great to see you again, but I do yeah. have one more question for you, if you don't mind. Sure. All right. Um, so what is one thing you wish I would have asked you? Oh, you warned me this question was coming and I was on the fence about how to answer this. But I think the one question that I wished you have asked me is um, how do you get traction in this business if you're working a full-time job? Like, how did I do that? And to be honest with you, um, just to answer my own question really briefly, it's the, yeah, four, for it. the four C's. I love, I love this concept. I just came up with this when I was like out and about just in nature, right? The four C's is you need consistency, you need coaching, you need clarity, and you need connections or like a network. And um, what I discovered is that if you lean into one of those C's, one of those things that you're really naturally inclined to, whether it's a coach, you know, or uh, connections, like you have a big network, or you just that you're really clear on what you want, like you have a clear visualization, you've seen other people do it, that's what you want, or you are consistent, you set aside a block of time every day, right? You do one of those things and you know what's going to happen is all the three other C's are just going to follow. It's just a natural progression. And as soon as you have those four C's working together, the more you can have them in harmony where they're all like complementing each other, 
the quicker you're going to succeed in this business, whether it's the single family side or the multifamily side or industrial, retail, triple net, you're an agent, whatever. If it's a side hustle, the quicker you can lean into one of those C's, the rest of those three are going to naturally come. And that's going to bring you a lot, a lot of success in the end. So anyway, that's, Dude, that's I love just that. the four C's. You got to brand that and push that to everyone. Oh, dude. Yeah, I, I know. I know. There's probably a lot already of working on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I love it. It's, it's cool stuff. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for sharing. Um, how can our listeners get a hold of you? Yeah. So easy. Just go to our website at elevateequity.org. Um, we have a book where you can just type my name into Amazon. Um, and for those who want to figure out how my wife and I um, prepared ourselves to leave our full-time job and, you know, over doing that over a five-year period from starting in real estate to leaving the corporate job, um, just go to elevateequity.org forward slash podcast gift. And there's a free ebook there that you can find out more about that. Awesome. And we'll put all that in the show notes. I think I already have actually. So we're good there. Cool. And Derek, thank you again for your time and providing your gold nuggets. Uh, it's always great to connect, man. Yeah, absolutely, dude. This is long overdue. I'm glad we could meet face to face. And uh, yeah, good to talk with you again. Likewise. And to all of our listeners out there, um, if you like the episode, you know what to do. And we'll look forward to next time. All right. Cheers, everyone. See ya.